Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so on today's episode, I speak with Ryan Weiss. Ryan is a certified kundalini yoga and meditation teacher, a life coach, and the creator of the daily morning email called Waking Up With Ryan. He is also the mastermind of a new online self-care program called Sanctuary, which we will discuss later in our conversation. So I don't want to reveal too much biographical information here in this preamble. But as you will hear, while Ryan has an exceptionally unique family story, he has also traveled a path that you may relate to. He was raised Jewish and, like many of us, wandered away from institutional religion, discovered an alternate personal spiritual path, and then found a way back to a new understanding of Judaism. I think many of us may be able to see some of our own journey in Ryan's and also take inspiration from it. Among many topics, we explore the utility of institutional religion and where it fails to be applicable to modern life. We talk about the influence of Marianne Williamson, the lessons embedded in A Course in Miracles, and the importance of self-care. If you are interested in enrolling in Ryan's new Sanctuary Self-Care program for completely free, head over to thesanctuarychallenge.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ryan Weiss. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Common. Mr. Ryan Weiss. Hello, sir. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure. Yes. I haven't done one of these in a little while, so you're re-enlisting me. And so, oh, I hope I meet your standards. I, I hope I meet yours because I'm rusty. But, um, well, great. Let's just check in at the end and just give each other like a, a one out of ten. That's great. It's an assessment. Yeah. Uh, I like your accountability workshop or your worksheet, which we can talk about um, later. I might borrow that idea. But um, so there are myriad topics um, I'd like to explore with you today, um, including the launch of your new Sanctuary Challenge, 60-day challenge for which I have registered. Um, yes. But prior to getting there, uh, I'd like to explore a couple aspects of your work um, that I've found exceptionally unique. Um, Of course, I've known you primarily as a meditation teacher, and I I know that you're also a private coach, Um, but you've also managed to alloy uh, your Jewish faith with modern spirituality in a significantly public and I would say intriguing way. You've been the organizer of numerous events that combine traditions that that some folks might consider incompatible so i would love to talk about that and um and just generally curious about how judaism 
influences how you understand the world and, and how it shapes your teachings and your coaching, if it does at all. Um, and I suppose connected to this, I'd love to investigate your broader understanding of holistic well-being and its core components, how they're mas- manifested in the sanctuary uh, project, and, and by extension, kind of how these primary components of well-being are weaved into your work in general. But before we jump into all that, um, I'd love for you to spend just a few minutes scaffolding our conversation with with some biographical information because your family life is quite uh, distinctive, I guess I'd say, and um, <laughs> and provide us with just generally some background that can illuminate how you've gotten to be an expert on the ideas that we will um, probe today. Beautiful. Um, so my background, I, I come from a big, um, awesome, crazy Jewish Los Angeles based family. Um, I, my parents uh, actually had a 12 year old and a 15 year old, and they wanted to have one more kid. Uh, and they, my mom got pregnant with triplets. And so I'm one of the three triplets. Um, and if you look at all of my siblings now, my other four siblings, they are all in the Jewish clergy. So they're either rabbis or cantors, which is the singing rabbis or Jewish educators. Um, and I'm the only one that kind of took a different path, but in many ways, my path was informed by my, by my Judaism, um, but a little bit differently, a little less traditionally, I, I suppose, the most important factor of my Judaism growing up was the community aspect. I went to Jewish sleepaway camp every summer and we would sing and dance and play sports. And it was just such a, I think back on those times with so much love and lo- and so much gratitude because it was, I, I felt so free and, you know, everyone's playing guitar. They're like sitting on the lawn playing Dave Matthews. It's like the most like... <laughs> idyllic how exactly how I want to live and the music was so rich and so I loved that aspect of kind of gathering and community and family time and and most weeks our family had Shabbat dinner where on Friday nights it was just about being with the family and being together and kind of shutting off from the world and so there was so much great stuff in Judaism. And I also happened to grow up in a city where a lot of people were Jewish. So I have a lot of Jewish friends who grew up all over the country, all over the world, and kind of felt like the odd person out. Um, I never felt that way. I kind of grew up in a world where everyone was Jewish. So all in all, it was a positive experience. However, um, it never really had, I, I suppose, the like spiritual or the religious aspect of Judaism. Um, it never had a direct impact on my life in terms of how the teachings would inform my choices and and who I was becoming in the way that I believe religion and spirituality really can. So for example, like we'd go to synagogue for like the high holidays and everyone would be wearing the like right, like suit and jack, like suit and tie uh, and the right jewelry and everyone was really concerned about like where they were sitting and did they have a relationship with the rabbi and like, were they important in the community and did the people say hi and know their names? There's a lot of that stuff, 
But then meanwhile, the prayer books would open and we'd kind of like recite these Hebrew prayers. Most people didn't even know the words to the prayers. No one actually knows how to read the Torah. Like it's all something that you kind of learn to get through your, your bar or bot or your B'nai Mitzvah when you're 13 and then you forget everything. Um, and I felt like here we are in this, in this synagogue reciting like beautiful words, like beautiful texts, and then walking out of the synagogue and like people are making eyes at each other and you sit down at the table afterward and you're talking smack about the, 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 the sermon that the rabbi just gave and how dare she talk about politics, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, this is, I, what we're doing here isn't informing how we're living. And it wasn't until I was, I turned 16 and a friend of mine invited me to take a dance class with her. And I walked into this dance studio in Hollywood and there was a live drummer that started playing the drums and the teacher in the front of the class, her name was Denise Leitner. Um, she started moving and, and kind of like showing us what to do. And as soon as I started moving my body, my body knew what to do and dance. It was like in that moment, dance found me. And I don't know if I would have had the words at the time to explain this, but that is where I found my spirituality. That's where I found that something bigger or other than just myself, my brain could have a direct and immediate impact on me that I could have a conversation with this. Again, I couldn't have called it this at the time, but with a natural intelligence beyond my understanding that was literally moving my body and this presence kind of came over me. And in that moment at 16 years old, I kind of left everything behind and dance became my religion. It's where I found people who were like me um, as a closeted homosexual at the time. It was where I found a space where I could be safe to be myself. Um, it was where I found fellow artists, explorers, people who were kind of living a little bit more outside the box. And I found my chosen family. Um, and that experience directly like took me into, you know, three years later, I, I, I ended up booking a Broadway show called Wicked and at 19 years old, step into this Broadway world where I found more people like me and um, deep creativity and, and self-expression and and, and acceptance of, of all different kinds of people. And that then, um, I decided I wanted to leave the Broadway world, um, mainly because I wanted to have a little bit more kind of control over my life rather than waiting for the next audition and waiting for somebody else to pick me or cast me. Um, and I got a job back home in Hollywood at an agency where I found myself sitting at a desk every day for 10, 12 hours a day. And my body, you know, before that, for years and years, I was a dancer. I was moving my body every day. And I immediately felt the impact. And so uh, this is now, God, like 13 or 14 years ago, um, I started taking yoga. There was a yoga studio in the gym in the building where I worked. Um, and they just so happened to have incredible teaching staff there, many of whom I'm, I'm sure you know. And so I would go take like a 6 a.m. yoga and get to my desk at 7.30. And then I'd take like a 7.30 p.m. yoga and then go home and go to bed. 
and I was just soaking this stuff in. You know, it was it, it wasn't kind of your new age core power, which that's all great, but it wasn't that kind of like yoga workout. For whatever reason, the teachers there were really like yoga mystics, yoga philosophers. And I started just like absorbing this philosophical, spiritual stuff that was immediately impacting my life. And from there, everything kind of opened up. That was when I found A Course in Miracles and started studying that text, which as a Jewish kid, <laughs> raised being raised Jewish to then find this text called The Course in Miracles, which is channeled through Christ consciousness, um, you know, is a, is, a, is a divergence, but was the path that I was meant to be on that then I can keep telling my story, but then drove me um, to where I'm at now. There's a lot more I could share. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, how did your family react to your spiritual curiosity slash apostasy. <laughs> yep. Not well. Two words, not well. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I take responsibility for part of that and they take responsibility for part of that. Um, the responsibility that I take is, and I'm sure many of your listeners resonate with this, this whole world of spirituality and meditation and mindfulness and and everything that I was finding was so exciting to me because it felt like the truest truth that I had ever tapped into. The fact that I could practice gratitude, that I could practice forgiveness, the fact that I didn't have to live in this constant cycle of, of doing and running and then stressing and then feeling tired and um, being so worried about what other people thought about me. And the fact that I could find these resources for true healing that helped me feel more myself, more at ease. I was so excited about it. Um, and that excitement was a lot for people. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I was definitely proselytizing. I was definitely like wanting everybody to, 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 to know about what I was finding. And I know that that was a lot for my family specifically to witness. And at the same time, you know, this was really um, new for them. And so when I was talking about things that I was reading in A Course in Miracles, or even the fact that I was reading A Course in Miracles, and they go, who wrote that? <laughs> How are you going to explain <laughs> to your like, traditional Jewish family that it's like actually channeled, firstly, what the right. hell is that? And secondly, right. through Christ consciousness, well, wait, hold on, Jesus Christ wrote this, like, what does that mean? Right, so, so, uh, they had a really rough time with it. But let me tell you, I mean, once I really grasped that this is for me, that my path is for me, that it's not something that I have to go out into the world and proselytize and share with people in that way, and that I started taking the medicine for myself, um, within a couple of years, it was my mom or my sisters who started calling me saying, hey, I'm having a hard time with whatever. What do you think I can do? And uh, now it's totally great. Yeah. It's funny. I was talking with my father who is Jewish and his grandfather immigrated in that first wave of, of early 20th century um, immigration from, well, in his case, from the Ukraine, but 
in general, there was that massive wave from Eastern Europe and, and Russia. And um, of course, he left his shtetl in Kiev seeking refuge uh, from religious prosecution and, you know, came to America and pushed a, a cart, you know, through the streets of Chicago, um, repairing glass, etc. And, you know, made so much sacrifice for in the name of, of his faith. And, you know, then here I am, you know, with all of these religious freedoms saying like, eh, <laughs> you know, and I, so I, um, I sort of empathize with, with my family, um, and other families, you know, that, um, that, you know, go through that experience of having the younger generations become curious in, in other forms of spirituality and faith. And I think it's interesting. I will just kind of hover here just for one minute because, I've thought a lot about the utility of institutional religion and where it can play a productive role in society today. And, and certainly I had a similar experience, you know, to, um, to your experience with institutional religion. It just didn't, didn't speak to me. But I do recognize what it provides to society um, in terms of, particularly in terms of community. And like you were saying, you know, when you were going away to camp, that community experience, that sense of connection that it gave you was so powerful and and palpable and fulfilling. And obviously in, in today's kind of very atomized culture, we don't have a lot of community. So I, I see, you know, religion as useful in that regard. And I suppose it also provides kind of as heuristics, uh, some degree of moral teachings and values. Um, but I have tended to find a lot of, I've just generally religions very, very problematic um, insofar that they don't really address the issues of modern life, and, and they're not flexible in doing so. You know, philosophy and science and other ways of, ex, of, try, of, of understanding the world generally ask the question why and continue to keep revising themselves. You know, Judaism or Christianity or Islam, they are anchored um, in texts that are, in some cases, 2,500 years old. And, you know, I became for a moment sort of mildly obsessed with the Old Testament's obsession with capital punishment, for example, often um, in the form of like public stoning. And I just went back and like, you know, read, reread the Torah, particularly in Leviticus. You know, it's, it's like you can be stoned publicly to death for almost any act, you know, whether that's, you know, working on the Sabbath or, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain or any form of apostasy or striking your parents or homosexuality or not being a virgin on your wedding night. So, you know, I find from a, you know, textual point of view um, that religion does not offer modernity much, but from a community perspective, it still remains um, 
incredibly useful. And I, and I wonder how you feel about, about that idea. I'm so on the same page with you, um, which is probably why we found so much uh, solace in yoga, because in a way it, it offers both those things. It offers community and it offers teachings. It offers guidance. It offers a pathway. Um, I think, you know, the, the piece about community is so vastly important because we all need community. We need the feeling of belonging. That's something that we are born with in terms of our evolutionary neurology. A young, the mind of a young, 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 young baby knows that it cannot survive on its own, right? If you look at the human species, um, well, every other species, mainly in nature, is able to walk within, if not right after being born, within a day or two of being born, and then able to run just a few days later. Humans can't walk for a very long time. We're not able to clean ourselves, feed ourselves, run from a predator. We are completely dependent upon our parents. And so it's built into our neurology that we need community in order to survive. And religion has done a really, really good job for thousands of years to create that communal experience. However, a part of building that communal experience, largely, I'd say the vast majority of religious community is also built on a sense of belonging in relationship to othering, that this is the pathway to God, not that that if you, are, uh, if you are saved by Christ in Jesus's name, then you are going to heaven and everyone else isn't. Or that you are a, a Jew and you do not accept Christ as your savior, right? And there's this schism, there's this division happens that we're over here and they're over there. And that, that breeds, that breathes itself into a sense of belonging, which we see what that we see what that's done to the world. I think the other, the other inherent problem in the way religion has been set up is there's this idea that the person on the stage, the pastor, the rabbi, um, that they hold the keys to the kingdom, that they hold the keys to your healing, that in order to get to God or to your healing, that you need to go to them and that they know the right way, and that our way is the right way, and you need to follow it to a T, and this is how you do it, and this is how you don't do it, um, which, which builds a sense of dependency on this figure, this human being that's kind of larger than life, that knows more than you do, that has more access to God, as if they have a direct line to God that you don't have. And they think that modern spirituality, or even mystic, ancient spirituality, the, the inherent truth is no one holds the keys to our healing other than ourselves, that we as individuals have, the, have a personal relationship. We hold the key to our relationship with the spiritual world, with the ethereal realm, with our, with, with our higher power, with, with nature, um, and that there's no way, there's no way that is the right way. Yeah, there's a wonderful saying i don't know who wrote it or who conceived it but god has no grandchildren that there is no intermediary between one's relationship and a higher spirit um, mm. and <clears throat> i i agree with you i think that abrahamic 
religions and their efflorescence have codified this notion of dualism, Mm -hmm. that God is separate from us, uh, that everyone has a separate individuated soul, Mm -hmm. that we are separate from nature. In fact, we have dominion over it. Um, And that we have constantly reinforced um, through these stories, essentially, um, a sense of separation or a story of separation that then begins to influence and infiltrate all of the systems and structures by which we live, our economic systems, um, obviously our religious systems, how we broker our relationship with nature, Uh, even our dominant uh, scientific narratives, this notion of evolutionary biology, that we are just simply these meat wagons, you know, running around, you know, carrying genes that are, that seek out, um, you know, procreation through a process of of natural selection that are always in competition with each other. And, um, and these are the dominant narratives, you know, versus, um, may, you know, I tend to be quite interested in, in Buddhism, um, which is, or, or even Hinduism, which is this notion of, well, uh, of non-duality, that we are part of a greater self. And then when we access that, we actually have a transcendent or epiphanous experience where we can recognize that we are simply just kind of modifications of a greater self, that there's no real locus of consciousness sitting inside our brain, looking at our eyes, down our nose, <laughs> that, that, is a, that that's completely an illusion. So I tend to um, subscribe more, more to, to, those, um, to those kinds of ideologies, but, you know, I think the, uh, this, this is part of the great problem of being human, right? We just, we can, we can do our best to try to decipher and understand, um, ourselves, what about ourselves is eternal, um, and what are part of ourselves is ephemeral. Um, I think we're both right. I love breaking down the word human, that hue is light, mm. and that man is this animal body that we live. We're, we're both. We're both, you know, in this body, but perhaps we are not this body. And th- the simplest way I like to kind of look at this is every day if, if we drive a car, we get into the car we close the door, we turn it on, we tell it, you know, where to go using the steering wheel and how fast and how slow using the pedals. And it's this transportation device. But we never say I am my car, we don't have an identification as this car. Rather, we kind of recognize we're the intelligence that's utilizing the car to get from point A to point B to experience what we see along the way, um, etc. Um, and I think the same thing is true. We wake up in the morning and we kind of come into this body just like we come into the car and we see out the eyes, which are the windshield of the body. And we get to tell this body where to go and how fast and how slow. And, and we can choose to see that this body is a, is a transportation device. However, we've been taught 
Um, and we've come to believe that this body is our, identi- our identity. We identify as the body, um, which then inherently means that we identify with the strength of the body, the capacity of the body, the intelligence of the body, um, which when you compare yourself up against the other some, somehow uh, 8 billion other bodies on the planet, mm-hmm. really easy to feel really small and insignificant and powerless and, 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 and lacking. Um, and my hope is that, and what I'm, and what I know you and I are both seeing is this kind of awakening to a realization of, okay, um, this body is such a gift. Um, it's quite literally a a, a miracle, trillions of cells moving through the body, bacteria cells, mammalian cells, um, digestive systems, uh, unbelievable functionings happening in the body. The fact that that, uh, that I can inhale the air that's being exhaled by the trees, that, that my teeth can macerate food that's been grown from the earth, that my body knows how to use that energy to heal and energize and restore, um, that there's a sun in the sky that makes growing the food uh, possible, etc. That, that, that this, this world in which we live, that we are consistently connected to is truly uh, a wonder and it's truly miraculous and i'd say that my sense of faith actually comes from you know sometimes we we talk about having faith in what we can't see but and while i've experienced in my life ways that this universe has intersected with my life and brought people in right at the perfect moment and 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 um worked wonders for me I like to more have faith in what I can see. I can see that tree and know that it's exhaling so that I can inhale. I can see that this body that I live inside of is a wonder, is a miracle. And I think if, if for, for any one of us who are seeking faith, as opposed to kind of going out there and trying to find evidence, we can look as, as close as our breath. We have ample evidence of, of, of what a wonder and what a blessing and what a gift it is to get to be alive right now. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautifully put. And I mean, just how you spoke earlier in the conversation about when you started dancing, that there was a, an intuition mm-hmm. associated with that, that almost stands behind anything that we can perceive through the limited ability of our five senses and and even just as i speak right now and all of the processes that are involved with me you know moving my lips and my tongue to make some sort of noise that you might perceive as comprehensible or maybe (laughs) incomprehensible um and just you know that there are these waves you know hitting you know your your eardrum that get translated into into ideas that, that then you can grasp and process all of that is happening um, reflexively without really any um, of our consciousness or our awareness needed right and when you begin to think about all of that stuff that is happening reflexively in our human body um, I think you know you begin to acknowledge, the incredible presence of of what you call this miracle 
of the goings-on that we have no uh, mechanical understanding of, um, nor nor might we ever have that. And, um, and, and this is, you know, I think part of the the process of, of, you know, of trying to understand life of like what our role and and purpose is within it. Like, how do we, um, you know, uh, how do we come into greater awareness of the things that we don't necessarily see with our five senses? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of beauty to be found there. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's one of the primary reasons why I meditate mm-hmm. because, you know, sitting in silence is one of the very, very few human activities um, where you can grasp a sense of the infinite. Yes. Um, where you're actually not tied to your five senses. You're actually trying to access something outside of space and time without location, without any form. And, you know, that's where, the immutable lips. <laughs> so, um, so this is, uh, this is part of our, our human project. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, how then you began to understand A Course in Miracles and we both obviously have a very, um, beautiful friendship with, with Marianne Williamson. So maybe take us a little bit through kind of your evolution of like how you understood that text, what it began to mean to you and, and you know, your relationship with Marianne and, and then how that kind of brought you into um, who you are now. Yeah. Um, in the time after I quit the entertainment industry, there was about a year where I was my, my fun employment uh, time where I was just seeking and learning and growing and yogaing and, and, and just absorbing as much as I could. And um, I'd say probably right before I quit the, quit the industry, I was in, I think it was Barnes and Noble. Um, and I was in the sales section, just seeing what was there. And there was this blue book called the course in miracles. I'd never heard of it before. Um, I picked it up. I opened the first page uh, and something just, I felt completely connected to it. Um, the very beginning of A Course in Miracles, the first thing you read says, this is A Course in Miracles. It is a required course. Only the time in which you select the curriculum is up to you. This course does not aim to teach the meaning of love, for that is beyond what can be taught. It does, however, seek to remove the blocks you hold against the awareness of love's presence. And I read those words, and I felt truth in my body. Um, The notion that um, my spiritual path is actually about seeking the places where I'm uh, upholding and and building scaffolding or building brick walls between me and the presence of love in my life, that, that it almost gave me a sense of relief to know like, oh, love is right here. Purpose is right here. Meaning is right here. Um, I've just, from a very young age, built these blocks to seeing it. Anyway, so I think it was for like, it was like three ninety nine, And I was like, well, what's the harm? <laughs> I'll get it. And, it's a beat uh, of a book too. It can be somewhat um, daunting at first. <laughs> very much so. 
Very much so. There's 700 pages in the book. There's like the 700 pages of like thick, dense, called yeah. text. It's almost the only way I can describe it to people is almost Shakespearean in tone. Not that it takes on a William Shakespeare tone, but just how it's almost a different language. It's it, it, it's very confusing. And then there's 365 lessons that 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 um, give you a practical application of the ideology that the text puts forth. <clears throat> And, um, and thank God for those lessons, because while I was reading the text, my God, was I frustrated. I mean, I couldn't understand what it was saying and talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but from a metaphysical perspective and this non-dogmatic thing that was actually, the course calls itself a self-study program. That was another thing I really liked about it, that it wasn't trying to be a group think kind of religious, uh, group activity. Um, and but then I would get to the lessons of the day and they were super simple, especially at first, even though they were also a little confusing, they, each lesson each day um, gave me a simple task, um, like literally look around the room and whatever your eyes fall on, repeat, um, and this may sound confusing at first, but whatever your eyes fall on, repeat that, so I'm looking at a plant right now, that plant doesn't exist. That window doesn't exist. That wall doesn't exist. And you do that for one day through this practice. And then it builds up until you get to a lesson that says, I've given that plant the meaning that it has for me. And each day, just bit by bit, you start creating a, a new and different kind of relationship with the world around you and with the world within you, where we start getting to see that we've set up a, a very specific belief system and that that belief system has become a full and complete lens through which we see all our relationships and our work and our life in general. And so knowing that and starting to peel that back was really hard and really challenging and really painful. You know, one of the things that I know your people know for sure is that the beginning of starting to wake up to ourselves, um, it can be really painful. Because we suddenly start seeing the ways that we're acting not in alignment with our best interest. We start seeing the relationships that we've been holding on to that are not actually healthy. Um, and, uh, and A Course in Miracles actually says <clears throat> that when we start walking this path, that it may seem like everything's getting worse at first. The Course says it's not getting worse. We were just anesthetized to how bad it always was. We, we were just so com comfortable in the discomfort. And then we start walking these paths to better ourselves and clear our minds and learn how to take better care of ourselves. And suddenly it seems like everything's so much worse. It's like, no, we're actually just waking up to the insanity that we had been living our whole lives. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm studying this text. I'd say a few months later, I was invited by a friend to a dinner party and, um, I walked up the stairs in this beautiful home up in the hills, and the first person that I met eyes with, uh, this woman came over, we started talking, we sat in the corner, we actually never ended up sitting down at the dinner table. I don't think I ate anything that night. Uh, and about three hours later, after this fabulous conversation that we had, um, my friend who invited me to the party came over and said, I can't believe you were just sitting talking with Marianne Williamson for three hours. And I said... <laughs> I said, who's that? <laughs> I mean, she had said her name was Marianne, but I, 
he was like, you don't know Marianne Williamson. She was on Oprah. Blah, blah, blah. She wrote a return to love. She's like a big deal. And I was like, so still so new to this world other than yoga. I didn't really know about these spiritual teachers. And anyways, I got to build this relationship with, it turned out Marianne lived around the corner from me in West Hollywood at the time. And, and I got to witness her and spend time with her and become friends with her. And I learned a lot from her, you know, personally and going to her lectures and the way she was able to take this thick, dense course, a course in miracles and speak about it in a way that I could practically apply it to my life was so incredibly powerful. And I will say for anyone kind of going like, oh, this Course in Miracles thing sounds interesting. Um, it is set up for you to use it over a year, but it certainly took me at least three years to get through the first year of lessons because of the amount of times that I wanted to just throw it up against the wall and be like, I don't know what the hell this means. Um, and then a month later, you kind of come back. and. So, yeah, and I think just for the audience' sake, you know, for people who who aren't experts in this, A Course in Miracles was a book that was released in the mid seventies, I believe. Correct. And as you mentioned, it was um, purportedly dictated directly from Christ to a woman named Helen Schumann, I think, or Schumann. Schumann. Uh huh. And and exists in this um, this aforementioned large um, tome <laughs> with very small print, at least my, in my version. Mm-hmm. And um, and then Marianne, um, very much like you, discovered it and almost wrote what I would call the crib notes. But I I say that with the greatest amount of reverence <laughs> to her. Absolutely. Um, called A Return to Love, which I believe was released in 1994 or, or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that and was featured on Oprah and, and subsequently that popularized um, the work and made it more accessible, almost kind of gave it a, a gateway, if you will. Correct. Um, yeah. Um, so moving Kind of, oh, you know then, what, Jeff, I'll, yeah. I'll, I want to say one more thing about A Course in Miracles yeah. because yeah, I think the most practical thing that that text had done for me at the time was the Course suggests that we wake up every morning and we ask the questions to the universe. The Course says to the Holy Spirit, however you want to term it, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom? And it was the first time that I, you know, even though I was raised in this Jewish religion, that I really ever got the concept that I could open myself to hear from or to receive information or guidance from natural intelligence, from, from, an, from an intelligence beyond myself or beyond, I should say, my small self, which now I've come to know is actually my true self. Um, and what, how I had been living my life before that is I'd wake up every morning and start thinking about what do I need to do today with my money and my time and my work and my relationships. And it was a huge shift for me to say, what if, what if there's an intelligence beyond just my small, my small self that could impact me, that could inform me, that could guide me. 
And when I started to do that consistently, that is what really started shaping my life. That's when people started coming into my life um, that could teach me, guide me, befriend me, show me new new ways, new experiences, um, which ultimately is what guided me um, into starting a coaching practice, which is a whole other long story that I can tell you another time. But but for yeah. anyone, you know, there, there's this before. I would say before a course in miracles. I had a really hard time believing in the God that everyone had told me about. And I think part of that reason was I had not had a direct experience of God. I had not had a direct connection with the presence of spirit. And what I learned subsequently was that was because I hadn't been actively opening myself to it, except for in the dance studio. That was, mm -hmm. that was where I had felt it. It was like where I had expressed my willingness to connect. Yes. Well, that's it. It's, it is just pure connection where there is no duality between your body and your brain or your mind mm -hmm. or your body as an individuated corporeal being and anybody else's and, and I, I will say that I have found A Course in Miracles to be extremely kind of protean in the application of its principles and, and really using this core idea of awareness of love's presence as a as a fulcrum to apply to myriad components of your life I mean let's just take relationships for example you know, to wake up every day and instead of kind of looking at your calendar and being like, okay, I got that meeting and that call and that thing or whatever, is that you spend even two minutes sitting in the quietness of, of the awareness of love's presence such that your goal becomes to bring love into every one of those interactions planned or not Amen. and what you said um you know th that when you begin to embody that or what wayne dyer called like walk in the footsteps of the ascendant host or however you want to explain it live in the greatest possible alignment with your highest principles you know the angels that you wish to attract into your life will appear because they recognize themselves in you. So all of those doors then begin to open up. And, um, and what at one point might have felt really hard and, and difficult and with a lot of resistance begins to thaw and surrender. Um, so I find, I find that the, the, the teachings in it, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in it, but I find that the teachings are very flexible. And really, if you just grab that one kernel, <laughs> that you can, you can really apply it in a variety of different ways. Um, I guess the only other piece on A Course in Miracles, there's one quote that has always stuck with me. And I think it's, it's, it's the memory of God comes to the quiet mind uh, a mind at war with itself remembers not eternal gentleness um, but that notion of the memory of god 
that we all, that there is an innate part of ourselves that is God. It's, it's there. And when we access or cultivate that quiet mind, that memory comes flooding back. And it's just that image I saw was stuck with me. So beautiful. Um, yeah, it's lovely. So moving forward in, in your life, you did seem to find a interesting peace and balance between your kind of newly found spiritual texts and awakenings and thoughts and processings and your your Jewish upbringing and heritage. And um, I remember when I moved to L.A., uh, I was fortunate enough to get on, I think, a very a great little list um, of uh, 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 there was an invite um, to some events that you were putting together geared around the Jewish holidays. And I wonder, I mean, we don't have to spend tremendous time talking about it, but I wonder what those were like and what that inspiration, what the inspiration was for that. And, and then, because you, you didn't really have to be Jewish to go, if I, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially what happened was I was invited to a Shabbat dinner um, at a friend's house uh, I went, there was this wonderful woman who at the time was working for the Jewish Federation, who um, her job at the Jewish Federation was to find kind of millennial aged people to host Shabbat dinners and that the Jewish Federation would um, sponsor the dinners. And um, I was really interested in this. And where I lived at the time, I had this really large front lawn and um, her name was Chaya Bindel. Her name still is Chaya Bindel. And, and Chaya and I that night deeply connected. Chaya came from being raised in uh, the Chabad hyper-Orthodox style of Judaism um, on the East Coast. She then moved to Israel and became married to the kind of uh, fancy Chabad rabbi there. And then for reasons I'll, she can share with you, uh, she she came moved back to the states and was trying to figure out what what she would do and and found this job at the Jewish Federation and so here was this woman who's truly a Jewish mystic um, that she and I could just wax spiritual all day long and everything that I was bringing to the table was more yes my my you know knowledge of Judaism but really more coming from this wider smorgasbord of spirituality. And everything that I was saying, she was mimicking from the teachers of the greatest uh, Jewish rabbis throughout history. And it just was so fascinating. So she and I became really close. And for my, I think it was my 30th birthday. So that's six years ago now. Um, she was like, let's host a Shabbat dinner for your birthday. And uh, we ended up having, I think, 100 people. <laughs> and then they just grew and grew and grew until we were you know, just maxed out. And um, it was a deeply spiritual experience where we used the Jewish prayers and obviously the Jewish uh, um, tradition of, of Shabbat. And we would bring in musicians and it was just beautiful. And once a month, we'd have a gathering somewhere. Um, and it kind of just took on a life of its own. Um, and then 
maybe about a year later, I was asked by the rabbi from my childhood. Uh, she was aware of the dinners that I was doing and the work that I'd been doing. And I think she saw me speak somewhere and she said, would you be interested in coming in to um, co-create the um, contemplative Jewish high holiday services at the synagogue, which those had been going on for a number of years. And they would kind of get a few people to come together and kind of meditate. And, and so I took it on and um, of, I, I've done that now. I did that now for four years, I think. And um, it's wonderful. We create this spiritual, contemplative, meditative, musical, high holiday experience, which is so beautiful to be at the synagogue where I grew up. Um, and I bring in live musicians, a cellist. I, last, this last year, I brought in a sound healer with crystal bowls and chimes. And we utilized the themes of the Jewish high holidays, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, which are such beautiful teachings. Um, but again, I find that in the kind of rote religious approach, we kind of just move through them like we're, we're kind of just supposed to show up, read these texts, and then go home and eat dinner with our family. Instead, we kind of took that and went deep into the themes of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur um, and did meditations on them and had conversations about them and built community around it. And, um, and it was really beautiful. And this last time I did it, you know, this is just like kind of spread word of mouth. We ended up having 500 people show up. Um, like, thank God we were able to open up the side rooms and there were chairs and think, you know, it's like pretty overwhelming. Um, but that was a de definitely a defining moment in my life when those 500 people showed up and, and, um, and I really felt, um, just so deeply connected to my source and what I was teaching and sharing and the way people were coming up to me afterward and just sharing that they had never, they'd been going to synagogue their whole life and they had never really, really experienced a, a personal relationship with the teachings in this way and the insights that they had had and the things that showed up in their meditations. And there's one gentleman who's a friend of mine who's brilliant and he's a, he's a very, 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 very successful multiple, multiple award-winning, um, well, I'll leave his personality out of it, but very highly respectable genius kind of a guy who's never come to, he doesn't go to the yoga classes and doesn't go to the spiritual things. And, but he came, his wife dragged him to this. And he shared with me after the experience that at one point he had to go outside to feed the meters. And he said, Ryan, I've walked this street for years but I've never seen the color of the trees. And there was an older woman who walked by me and he said, I looked right at her and she smiled at me and I saw her soul. And I've never experienced this kind of sensory awareness that I did when I just walked on the street, having experienced this experience. And I thought, this is such a gift. Um, and so actually it was that experience high holidays a year ago that I was like, okay, what do I do with this? How do we continue to create this? And that's where the idea for sanctuary was born. Um, and it was going to be launched as a live event series. And we had the first event scheduled and planned and we had the venue and Leanne Rhymes was coming to debut her 
uh, a couple of tracks of chance music that she had been doing, and we were about to put tickets on sale, and then COVID hit. And so that got pulled the plug on that. And then I spent, you know, the first six months of, of this uh, shut-in uh, incubator to kind of think, how does this live? How does this thing want to live online? And that was the birthplace of the Sanctuary Challenge. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Um, I just want to bookend one last little piece of your story with a question, really. Did it? Did having that kind of transformational experience back in a synagogue sort of create a a sense of um, closure for you in some ways? Or I, mm. I'm not sure closure is exactly mm. the right word. Um, there's this T.S. Eliot quote. It's my favorite quote, so I actually know it. Um, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started Amen. for the first time. <laughs> so I wonder if you came back to the place that you started, but you really knew it for the first time. So, so it's kind of a prodigal son story, right? My journey of leaving Judaism only to come back to it and find the deepest sense of self that there was a part of me that judged the religion, that um, thought in some way there was an arrogance that I held that I'm better than this, that my sense of spirituality is better than this. And that here was this kind of epicenter moment where I'm in a synagogue, but I've brought with me the learnings, the teachings, and the growth for the past decade of my life. And the intersection between the two that sense of completion, it was like a circuit got plugged back in. And um, I felt whole. And I felt like, oh, this is, this has kind of manifest in such a way that is beyond what I could have forced it to. Um, and it felt like a blessing. And so I actually really appreciate that insight, because that's exactly what I felt inside my body. And I don't know that I gave it words. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Okay, so let's talk about sanctuary and um, and its components. Because as I understand it, um, there are five central components that that inform or that, that might be considered spokes mm-hmm. of your understanding of, of holistic well being. So take us through a little bit uh, through mm-hmm. the architecture uh, of the program. Beautiful. So the Sanctuary Challenge, firstly, it's free. Um, it's an opportunity to get into the hands of, of everyone. I believe that real self-care is free and, and can be free. And it's beautiful to purchase, you know, our yoga pants and our lotions and our potions. I love all that stuff. And we don't need to purchase um, in order to take care of ourselves. So the Sanctuary Challenge is, is free and it is a 60-day commitment to five daily self-care practices. And these five self-care practices, I find, create a foundation that supports us in everything else we do in life. Um, The five commitments are a daily morning meditation. We've created a guided meditation for people. Um, Moving your body or exercising is number two for 30 minutes a day. 
which as you and Skylar know well, um, it exercise and moving our body so serves to release endorphins and move our lymphatic system and give us a sense of accomplishment. Um, the third commitment is healthy eating and drinking half your body weight in water. Um, I believe that when we eat more food that comes from the earth, we're literally eating intelligence and putting it into our body. Um, and then the fourth is a ritual that I call goddess time, whether you are male or female, um, that the, the goddess time is a ritual at the end of your work day or your mom day or your dad day to unplug because all day long, no matter what we're doing, we are accumulating stress. And what we tend to do for an entire lifetime is then bring that stress of the day into the evening and then into bed and then into the next day with us. And all of us are walking around with decades and decades of accumulated stress, wondering why we're so easily triggered or, 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 or move into fits of anxiety. Um, so goddess time is a ritual at the end of that work day to unplug from our technology and if you have a bathtub get into a bath for 20 minutes or if you don't have a bathtub put your feet up a wall for 20 minutes um, and then the fifth commitment is trying to get eight hours of sleep now and we know what how important sleep is for us i don't think i have to tell your listeners um, the it's important for me to say that this is that it's it's my hope that one day out of the 60 days, each, each user or each person who signs up has one day where they complete all five of these practices. So if you're hearing me say, whoa, a 60-day commitment, that is way too long. I could never commit to 60 days. My suggestion is you just start with one and see how that goes. And then the next morning, maybe you recommit again. And then if you hear five daily self-care practices and you're a parent with young children and there's no way, how could I get five daily practices in? Just start with one. And maybe week two, pick up a second one. And maybe week three, if you can, pick up a third one. The Sanctuary Challenge doesn't want to be this really hardcore, kind of uh, hard-edged, abusive New Year's resolution. It wants to be, um, it wants to just be a, an offering of another way, an offering of how important it is for us to slow down and learn how to nurture ourselves. And I think you, you and I have been having a conversation today about, um, about who we are and the, the notion, or for me, the truth, that this natural intelligence of life is actually very much here to support us, uh, to offer us healing and clarity, um, clarity of purpose, clarity of action. But we don't connect with that because from the moment we're born, we were trained to move and think and build and do at such a rapid pace. And we've been doing that habitually our whole lives. And so it's a challenge to slow down right? This is why it's called the sanctuary challenge. It is a challenge to get your meditation in. It's a challenge to unplug and get your butt into the bathtub. It's a challenge to pause what you're doing to get your 30 minutes of exercise in. I recognize that. 
So anyone listening to this right now going, oh, that must be easy for him. No, it's not. <laughs> it is a challenge to commit to these things. Um, that's a big reason why we're putting it out and suggesting that people make the attempt for 60 days because that leaves a lot of room to, quote, fail and fall off and miss days, miss multiple days or miss practices throughout the day and then get back on. And a lot of the communication that we're going to be sharing with the people who are doing the challenge is really about like, when you do fall off, how do you talk to yourself? Is there that judgmental voice in your head that's telling you, look, another thing that you committed to and fail and failed at, what a failure you are? Or do you learn to actually speak with a voice that says, I've been running so fast for decades. So of course I missed my meditation. Of course I missed my yoga practice. Of course I didn't get the workout in because I've, I'm not in the habit. I'm not in the habit of it yet. And I'm going to be kind to myself and give myself the nourishment to, um, to recommit. The other piece to it, when people come to the website, which is the sanctuarychallenge.com, and they can read through the whole challenge and then click take the challenge and create a login. Once they have their login and go into the back end of the website, there's a dashboard that has all of your, it's, there's a link that says get the essentials that has your morning meditation, it has an accountability tracker, it has a PDF explaining all the practices, and then videos kind of going deeper into each one of the practices. Um, my favorite thing on the back end of the website is a section called Invite My Crew, because we all know that we should be doing these practices every day, but it's really hard for us to hold ourselves accountable to our commitments. And so as opposed to thinking that we should be the ones that have to hold ourselves responsible or accountable all the time, I actually believe that that should be an aspect of community, or I should say that can be an aspect of community. So it's our hope that people actually take on the Sanctuary Challenge in community by inviting their accountability crew. I've been doing this in group coaching, where we do a five-week group coaching uh, process. And week one, everybody commits to these five practices. And we, I put everyone on a text chain where every morning, once people do their morning meditation, they jump into the text chain and they say, hey, everyone, hope everyone's good. Today, I am committed to my morning meditation, my exercise, my goddess time, healthy eating and water drinking, and getting eight hours of sleep. And what that does is, firstly, we know with making commitments it's not enough to make a commitment for the next two months. We actually have to remake that commitment. We have to re-up the commitment every day. And so it gives you an opportunity to every morning when you wake up, remind yourself, I'm committed to this. And then because we've been moving so quickly, most often we wake up in the morning and we totally forget that we had made this commitment and we go back into our kind of habitual stuff. But hopefully at least one person in your sanctuary accountability crew remembers and then they message the rest of the group saying, today I am committed to, and puts their commitments in. And then I get to get that reminder. It's like, oh, right, I'm committed to this today. And I've shared it with other people. And they're holding me accountable. And I'm holding them accountable. Um, so those are just a few of the spokes of the wheel that create the architecture of the Sanctuary Challenge. Mm, yeah, thank you. And, and I think that there is a generally a collective misunderstanding that uh that that to do 
to engage in these kinds of practices that you're actually sacrificing productivity, mm-hmm. but actually that's a complete misunderstanding or paradox. In fact, to engage in meditation helps you not be distracted. And so then when you begin to focus on your work, whatever that work happens to be, you are actually single tasking on that work. That's right. And I I don't think people understand the degree to which their attention degrades when they are trying to parallel process or what's called multitasking, which is really just toggling between a series of tasks, how long it actually takes to refocus the brain and hone it back on the primary task at hand, um, that isn't productive at all. And so, you know, when I'm kind of on top of my game and I'm checking the boxes in these five categories, I'm not only feeling better in my body and clearer in my mind, I'm actually also more productive. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's no, there's no sacrifice going on there. And I, I, I'd also like for you, if you can to maybe, maybe talk a little bit about kind of dissuading people that self care is indulgent. Yeah. Uh, because I think that there is also a collective misunderstanding around that, that I, that one might have, priorities that take primacy over oneself yes um but maybe you could talk about that just for a moment yeah i could talk about that for a couple of hours um <laughs> but I'll, I'll try my best take to keep it I'll, I'll try to keep it brief um we have developed societally the belief that focusing on ourselves and taking care of ourselves is somehow indulgent and not productive we can talk about how that's been used as a manipulation by industry to get people to focus on work as the apex of all that is important and the purpose of our lives um, in order to drive profit for wealthy people. Um, But also I like to look at it from a a psychological lens, which is that um, when we were very young, when we were little babies and our parents, for whatever reason, were experiencing stress because finances were tight, or there was some um, issues in their relationship, or they were a single parent and working really hard or having trouble finding a job or worried about how they were going to pay the mortgage or um, having some kind of a health issue. Um, Our parents were largely stressed. Um, Also, many, many, many of our parents and ourselves included experienced some level or many levels of trauma that went unprocessed because societally we haven't been um, largely had the tools and the level of focus on healing trauma, which again is another episode. Um, But because our parents were largely stressed and unable then to attune to our needs, when we were young children and we cried out, we learned that our crying out, so we felt a feeling and we then expressed a feeling through this crying out. We were either pacified or told to shush, or now this day and age, a screen gets put into our face, which is, we get this messaging from a very young age that it's actually not safe to feel our feelings. Because what I mentioned earlier in the podcast episode about how we have, we completely rely for survival upon our primary caretakers. And if we notice that our emotional life is an inconvenience for our caretaker, 
we learn that if that our emotional life might make them go away and that then we will die. And so we learn that our emotional life is in direct, um, it, it directly negatively affects our ability to survive. And we learn from a very young age that when we have those uncomfortable emotions, sadness, anger, resentment, jealousy, um, we learn not to express them, which means that we learn not to express also our needs, right? And so from a very young age, we learn to push these feelings away. We learn to disassociate from our uncomfortable emotions. And as adults, we're all walking around as this disassociated person who has a very, very, very limited relationship, if any relationship, with our uncomfortable emotions. And so the best way to avoid our uncomfortable emotions is to stay busy, is to work harder, do more, scroll through social media, to, you know, uh, um, take care of everyone else. Um, and what we see is that as soon as we stop, as soon as we slow down, that part of ourselves that's been sitting here all along starts to speak up. We start to feel that discomfort. And then what do we do? We medicate. We look for ways to avoid. Again, social media is a really, really easy one this day. Or we go smoke, which is one of my problems. I turn to tobacco. Um, or we have a drink. Or we want to eat. Or we want to put the TV on. All because yeah. we don't want to slow down and feel what's actually here. And so that's a huge reason why we actually look at self-care as unimportant because we actually don't want to find what's there when we slow down enough to care for ourselves. We're afraid to. And what I want to say to people who are hearing this, if you resonate with this at all, is the way to more love in your life is through making space for the things that don't feel like love. And the way to have healthier relationships with others is to have a healthier relationship with yourself which means making space for all of you, not just the parts of you that you perceive are going to look good and feel good to others, but also the parts of us that we're afraid to show, that we're afraid to feel. Um, <clears throat> I believe that the way, the path, you know, we're, here we are, and uh, you know, talking about spirituality and personal development and kind of, quote, finding oneself. There's so much language about finding oneself. Um, when I believe that finding oneself is actually just about learning how to feel our feelings. That's it. Carl Jung said that the feelings are the true self. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ryan Weiss. To enroll in Ryan's new Sanctuary Self-Care program for completely free, head over to thesanctuarychallenge.com. And as always, feel free to drop me a line with any suggestions or comments at jeffk at onecommune.com. I can't promise to respond to every inquiry, but I will read every email I receive. Of course, if you want to make my mother extremely proud, then write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it from The Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.